Great to see everyone this morning. Merry Christmas. How many of you are stressed? It is that time of year, the most wonderful time of year, where we are stressed out of our minds. Many of you have finals to study for, papers to write, or else maybe the people who aren't here are the ones who have finals to study for and papers to write. It's also stressful for faculty. How many faculty are stressed? Okay, good. We have assignments to grade and courses to finish. About 50 years ago, uh, two psychologists uh, actually created a, a stress test to try and, and understand how stress could actually lead to some forms of physical illness. The idea being, the more amount of stress you have in your life within a given year, the more likely that you're going to have a major health event uh, within the next year or two years. Uh, they created what became known as the holmes Rahe Stress Scale. And what this scale does is it offers a particular set of uh, stressful events, life change events, and it gives a point value to each one, with the idea being that the higher your points within a given year, the greater likelihood you're going to face some kind of health event just due to the stress itself. Would you like to see what some of the uh, life change events are and what points they're worth? Most interesting is how they weigh this. So the highest number is 100 points. You get 100 points if you've lost a spouse or a parent within this year. 100 points if you've had an unplanned pregnancy. 100 points if you've had an abortion. 73 points if you've gone through a divorce. 63 points if you've gone to prison this year. I always like to highlight, divorce can be more stressful than prison. 50 points if you got married which means marriage is less stressful than prison. 45. So ask her out. Okay, 45 points. 45 points if you retire. 40 points if you have a planned pregnancy. 29 points if you have to deal with your in-laws. The end of school is worth 23 points. And the point is, is that you add these up, and if you have 150 or less points within a given year, you are out of the danger zone. If you have between 150 and 299 points, you are actually in the danger zone, and if you have 300 points or more, you have something like an 80% chance to have a major health crisis in the next year or two, just due to the stress. Here's what I think is interesting about this. Christmas is worth 12 points. Meaning, if you are someone who was already at 288 points by December, and now you got to celebrate Christmas with your family, that in itself could send you right over the edge. How many know that sometimes Christmas is stressful? It's stressful to us because... We put too much on ourselves to create a perfect Christmas, to have the right meal, the right gift, the right event. And of course, if you have no one to share Christmas with, that brings about its own kind of stress. But I want to highlight this morning that sometimes we forget just how stressful the first Christmas was because we have done so much in sanitizing the Christmas story. 
Sometimes we sanitize it through our retelling of the story. So that when we hear the Christmas story again, we don't listen to the words we sell themselves, we listen to the cadence. We listen to the kind of gentle way the story is told, coupled with a carefully crafted environment of the right music or the right setting, whether at church, at a fireplace, around some kind of table. And it seems like a beautiful family story. Sometimes we sanitize it through our decorations. I always love how every manger scene lies, right? Every manger scene, nativity scene lies. We have carefully placed manger scenes where everyone shows up all at once. We have beautiful pictures of people experiencing a recent birth as if it's some kind of moment of perfect, peaceful holiness. We have media portrayals. In fact, sometimes I think we portray Christmas like it was some kind of socially crafted event, like Mary was some kind of social influencer, you know, and she's like, just gave birth to the Son of God, y'all. Look at the shepherds, you know. I mean, we craft it like that. Like this is the kind of thing it was. It wasn't that kind of thing at all. The first Christmas was distressing for everyone involved. In fact, I think it would be interesting for us to go through the Christmas story and take the Holmes-Rahe test and actually see how much stress is in the Christmas story. We already know an unplanned pregnancy is worth 100 points. So this is where Mary starts off. Mary and Joseph are stressed about their marriage. She's stressed about being unmarried and pregnant in a dangerous time. Joseph is stressed about having a pregnant fiancé who possibly cheated on him, and God says, it's okay, I want you to marry them anyway. Everyone is stressed about seeing angels, and the Holmes-Rahe test does not tell us how stressful it is to see an angel. But in the Christmas story, every time an angel shows up, the first words are, don't freak out. Be not afraid, because in the Bible, it is stressful to see angels. And the Magi and Herod are stressed about a sign in the sky of a newborn king. Magi who have seen the sign, but they don't exactly know where the king is, and they're trying to search for him. Herod, who doesn't know anything about the sign, but he does know what it's like to be threatened as king, and that brings its own stress. The Christmas story is distressing, and it's distressing because it's also disruptive. Everyone in the story experiences a disruption in their lives over this. It's disruptive in the lives of Joseph and Mary who have to deal with the disruption of a census that forces them to travel to Bethlehem while she's pregnant. I mean, you think after all that God had asked them to do, couldn't he have made that a little easier? But instead, it's disruptive. It's disruptive in the lives of the shepherds who are interrupted by a sight that almost scares them to death. And then it says they left in a hurry to go see what they had been told. And I've always wondered, so who was left with the sheep? By the way, these are shepherds who watch the flocks by night. That means they are third shift shepherds. Those aren't the people who own the sheep. Those are the people who are so far away from being owners, they have to work the third shift. Can you imagine them showing up and the sheep are gone and they're trying to explain that story? Well, we left for a really good reason. See, there was this angel and this baby. The first Christmas is disruptive in the lives of the Magi, who have to travel all the way to Israel because of it, can't find the right destination, have to consult with local scholars who don't share their concern, and then have to travel back in darkness like spies because they're so afraid that King Herod will find out the truth. One way I like to define disruption is disruption is simply an interruption that we don't control. A disruption is an interruption that we don't control. How many of you have ever disrupted or interrupted your life 
by getting on the internet and you lost an hour before you realized it. How many of you ever done that when you're supposed to be doing something else? Now, how many of you have ever had someone interrupt you with a conversation when you're supposed to be doing something else and they talk to you for five minutes and you wanted them to get out of your room? Okay? What did you find more disruptive? The person who came in or your internet search? Purpose for a lot of us, it's the person who came in because even though the internet search took more of my time, I was still in control. The person who came in, they took my time. That was more disruptive. The Christmas story is disruptive because God entering human history forces everyone to quit whatever they were doing because something more significant is happening. I mean, this is something we should all be aware of because we have all lived the last two years in a time of disruption. Something called COVID has completely disrupted our lives, but COVID has nothing on Christmas. The event of Jesus coming into the world changed human history, literally. And in this initial moment, it disrupts the lives of everyone involved. And I would love to recreate the manger scene, to sell a whole new nativity that is more realistic, where we have a Mary who looks like she just gave birth. We have a Joseph who looks like he's shell-shocked. We have shepherds who look like they were terrified. You know, maybe there's little vibrators in them and they're shaking right? We have magi who are far off in the whole distant place. Where's your magi? Oh, they're in the bedroom. They don't know where the nativity is yet, right? And we have scented candles. One candle is manure, another candle is human sweat, and another candle is blood, because that's what Christmas smelled like. Something that shows that this is what the first Christmas is like, but what I would also have, if I could add in some way, is I would also have the sound of mothers crying, Because we have a tendency to skip part of the Christmas story. And it's the part in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, where the Magi are warned to go another way because Herod wants to harm the child. And it says here, When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child, his mother, during the night, left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. This was what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. In this story, Joseph is warned to go to Egypt, to flee with his family, and Herod, in response, sends his soldiers into Bethlehem to kill every boy that was two years and under. Now, some scholars have argued that the number of babies likely killed would have been small if they were limited to a population of 1,000. So if you have a population of 1,000 in that vicinity, likely they would have killed no more than 12 to 20 babies. So now let's talk about 12 to 20 mothers who have experienced the worst day of their lives. Let's talk about a town that experienced its worst day. And this event, known as the massacre or slaughter of the innocents, 
is one that we sometimes skip over when telling the story of Christmas, but it's an important part of the story we should not forget. Some people think the reason Matthew tells us this story, and he's the only one to do so, is because he's trying to get the reader, who probably would have been initially Jewish, to draw a parallel between Moses in Egypt, where he escaped a slaughter of babies, who was sent to deliver Israel, to Jesus in Egypt, where he escaped a slaughter of babies, and he was sent to deliver Israel. But I think the reason isn't just this. I think another reason is this story reminds us of the very reason the world needs Jesus. See, the whole Christmas story, the way that it's told, is meant to be a reminder of our need for the Christmas event. And Christmas, we aren't celebrating the birth of a baby. What we're celebrating is the coming of a Savior. Christmas is an answer. But the story explains to us the problem that needed it. In fact, I'm going to argue that sometimes the reason we struggle with understanding the Bible, the reason we struggle with sometimes understanding the Christian faith is this. How many of you grew up in the church? A lot of you in here received the answers before you ever actually understood the questions. You were given the answer before you understood the question, so the answer has lost some of its meaning. The Christmas story is showing us why Jesus is the answer. Why the world needs a savior. It shows us a world where those in power can literally get away with murder of those who are most vulnerable. It shows us a world where some jobs, like third shift shepherds, are so disrespected by others, it's a surprise to us that God would respect it. It shows us a world where people who are minding their own business can be forced to become refugees because they're trying to save their families. It shows us a world where women who give birth are at risk financially, culturally, and physically, while women who do not give birth still face their own kinds of challenges. It shows us the world that needs a savior. And in a world that is desperately in need of a savior, that's the world God has come to. If Moses came to save people from slavery to Egypt, Jesus has come to save us from our slavery to sin. And in the Christmas story, we have to take seriously why we need a savior. I think sometimes one of the hardest things for us to accept is that we're simply not going to be able to be good enough on our own. But it's not that I'm not good enough on my own because God has some impossible standard and I can't reach it. It's that I'm not good enough on my own because I'm not good enough for us to be able to live together in peace without God. Because if we were good enough to do that on our own, it would have already have happened. There's a lot of places that don't know Jesus, a lot of places that don't know God, a lot of places without any light of Christ. None of those places have experienced justice. Left on our own, we're not good enough to live together. God shows us a world that needs Christ. Sin, this way of living and thinking that leads us to choices that harm us, is sometimes ignored by us 
as a real problem in favor of other ways of thinking about our problems where we become the answer or solution. Sometimes we see sin as archaic because we want to be able to recast it as some other thing, some other thing I can solve. Because if I think of it as sin, it's not something I can solve, it's something God has to solve. And now I'm in need of a Savior. And yet Christmas reminds us that we are in need of a Savior. We live in a world of hostility. We live in a world of injustice. We live in a world of pain. And Jesus is the answer to this problem of sin. Christmas is not just a feel-good story about babies and families. It's how Jesus provides the answer himself by giving us a way of living that takes us out of the destructive path of sin. Christmas is a story of hope. It's not given to us to make us feel bad about ourselves. It's given to us to give us hope that the slaughter, the mistreatment, the fear will not be the final word for us. But God has entered this world. Jesus has come into it. And God will not stop until creation has become the way it was meant to be. God does not stop for our good because it's in his nature to be faithful. He doesn't stop. And Christmas reminds us of how much he's willing to enter into our sin in order to save us from it. The sounds of Christmas aren't just weeping in grief, but it's also singing in joy because of what the birth of Jesus means to the world. Already the world has felt the incredible impact of Jesus. Felt the incredible impact through his followers. I could give you a list of the things that exist in our world today simply because Christians existed in the world. And those who followed Christ made a difference in ways that would not exist were it not for Christ. The Christmas story is the beginning of that. When we celebrate Christ, we celebrate the invention of hospitals. When we celebrate Christ, we celebrate the civil rights movement. When we celebrate Christ, we celebrate the people who have risked themselves to bring freedom to others. All of these things that have happened because Jesus exists in the world. And the Christmas story is the beginning of that. The Christmas story shows us what the problem is. The Christmas story shows us what the answer is. And the Christmas story gives us hope that Jesus, who came as a baby, will still come as a king because God will not stop. The day will come when this world will be set right the way it should be, when there will be justice in place of injustice, peace in place of conflict, joy in place of mourning, love in place of indifference. And it all begins at Christmas. Praise God for Jesus. I'm going to invite our singers to come back up as we close out with one last song. And I simply want to ask this of you as we close in prayer, and it's simply this, two things. Number one, this Christmas season, I want you to hear the story with both eyes open and both ears open. Don't miss what's actually being told to you by the story as you come to it. Don't sanitize Christmas to such an extent that you miss what you're being told. But here's the second thing. Here's the thing I want to really end with. 
The world will only understand the difference Christmas makes when it understands the difference Christians make. It will only understand the difference Christmas makes when it understands the difference Christians make. When we follow Christ, what can happen in the world for those people who live a life of the Messiah? So my final challenge to you is this. Not just read the story with both eyes open. Hear the story with both ears open. But be the Christmas itself that God has promised through Christ so the world can know the hope that Jesus actually brings. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Christmas. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you were willing to enter into a world of violence, a world of injustice, a world filled with need, because you were willing to be the answer at every single level. God, we thank you for Christmas, and I pray that you would help us to be the reflection of what you call the coming of Jesus to be, that we as Christians could be the difference that you call the church to be in this world, and we commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.